So one thing we're just talking about here, of course, you know, why the market is rallying. We all know this, right? It's just tons of liquidity coming in from the Federal Reserve. And, you know, the big concern going into the Fed Jackson Hole meeting is that uh, they would announce taper. And they actually did. They said they will taper this year. What they what but what kind of spurred the bulls here is that they're not going to taper anytime soon. It'll be later on this year, uh, maybe the next couple of months. And they're not going to rate, hike rates anytime soon. So bulls keep buying uh, the bullish biases, of course, that, well, you know, still $120 billion a month coming in, keep buying stocks. And that's that's pretty much been the case. And as we said earlier, you know, we just, we, we will eclipse today seven straight months of advance, a very rare occurrence, historically speaking. So again, nothing wrong with that at all. It just happens from time to time, just kind of shows you the level of exuberance that we've got going on in the markets. But it's just kind of where we are. And but again, this is something that, you know, we've discussed a little bit before and have talked about from time to time is that the problem for the Fed is that they get themselves into these positions to where there's a very high potential of making a monetary policy mistake. And they've now put themselves back in that position again. Now, what do I mean by that? So when, let's go back to the basic premise of why the Fed does what they do. Keynesian economic policy suggests that when there is a market downturn, or sorry, I should say an economic downturn, in other words, you have a recession, that's where the government should step in and do deficit spending and these type of things to help create economic activity and kind of boost economic growth, get you back into the growth mode. And at that point, you're supposed to reverse the deficit spending, go back into surplus and prepare for the next downturn because recessions are just part of the normal economic cycle. Nothing to be afraid of. Well, the problem is, is that starting in 1980, we really kind of went whole hog on this whole idea of deficit spending and have continued to ramp up deficits more and more and more, which has driven interest rates ultimately lower and lower to the point that now it's not effective to do deficit spending. In fact, there is a negative economic multiplier of deficit spending in the economy, which is why we don't get a boost to growth. So beginning in 2009, after the financial crisis, Ben Bernanke said, look, here's what we're going to do is we're going to do this very innovative program called quantitative easing. And we're going to monetize the debt of the U.S. government and put that liquidity to work in the markets. And look, and, and, and Ben Bernanke specifically said this. Now, while there's been people like Neil Kashkari and others that says, I don't understand how swapping one asset for another affects the financial markets. Ben Bernanke himself said in 2010 that the reason for quantitative easing was to lift asset prices in order to spur consumer confidence, which would lead to economic growth. In other words, make you feel better about the markets. People feel better that they've got the markets are good. That must mean things are going well. So I spend more money in the economy because I feel confident I'm not going to lose my job, so forth and so on. And that worked well. And then as soon as QE quit, the market started to decline. And so we did QE too so forth and so on. So here we are today, 20 years later, still doing QE, trying to figure out why we don't get economic growth that is sustainable. See, here's the problem. 
as long as we're doing QE, the market's going up and we can kind of maintain economic growth, but we don't create economic growth. We're just sustaining it. We're keeping it from falling off the cliff. As soon as you withdraw the monetary stimulus, everything slows down. But this is where the Fed gets themselves into, into trouble and why they should have already been tapering. If, and so if I was the Fed, right, you're not going to agree with me with when I say this, but follow me through for a second. If I was Ben Bernanke, as an example, when I did QE1, that was the right timing for it. Man, we were in, in a devastating financial crisis at that point. Need to get the economy going again, so I do this QE program. And as soon as the economy starts to recover, I need to keep that QE program going so I can keep things kind of lifted, but then start raising interest rates below the surface. Use that liquidity as a buffer against what would happen when I start raising interest rates. Now, the economy wouldn't have risen as much as it did back then, but you would have had economic growth. And you've gotten interest rates off of zero to let you prepare for the next downturn so that you could use that monetary policy tool. But this is the problem we never did. We just kept interest rates at zero for almost a decade, tried to eventually lift interest rates in 2018 and led to disastrous consequences, immediately went back to zero. So here we are today doing $120 billion a month in QE with zero interest rates. What the Fed should have done is that when the market started rebounding, I mean, the markets are now up a over 100% from their March 20 lows. With the market screaming higher because of all this QE, right? And we've got this resurgence in economic activity because of all the money the Fed was, was chunking into the economy. The Fed should have gone ahead and lifted interest rates, used all that liquidity cushion to help that's driving markets and, you know, helping the economy recover, use that cushion to start raising interest rates. And that would have slowed down the rate of inflation. Yes, it would have impaired the rate of economic growth a bit. We wouldn't be growing at the rate we're growing now. And the markets wouldn't be up 100% from the March 20 lows, pushing historically high valuations. But they didn't do that. So now here we are. You still got zero interest rates. You're still doing $120 billion a month. And now you're starting to worry about valuations, as was mentioned in the Jackson Hole speech. I've got an article coming up here in the next few days talking a little bit more about this idea of the Fed should have started tapering. Um, one of the former Fed vice chairs, uh, Don Cohn, said that one of the mandates that Congress should pass on the Fed is, is financial stability. And it's an interesting concept because one of the things that we've witnessed over and over and over again is that every time we get into some type of recessionary activity in the economy or some type of slowdown, the first thing the, the Fed has to do is go bail out the banks because even though we're, we're told repeatedly, and just we were just told this recently, and this is one of the reasons why markets are doing so well right now is because banks have been doing a massive amount of a buyback of their own shares because the Fed said, oh, yeah, they're financially sound enough now that they can, we can let them go ahead and issue dividends and buy back shares. Buying back shares doesn't help anybody. It's not a return of capital to shareholders. It's, that's complete nonsense. And 
the people who benefit from that are those on the insiders, you know, like, you know, Jamie Dimon, who just picked up another 700 million in stock options. The point is, you know, when you want, you know, if, if the banks were financially sound, you wouldn't have to be putting them under stress test. You wouldn't have to be limiting their ability to buy shares. They're obviously not financially sound. And we wouldn't have to be bailing them out every turn. So what Cohn suggests is, is that we need to make financial stability of these banks priority number one. They need to retain more capital. They need to limit activity in financial and speculative markets. They need to go back to doing what they're supposed to do, which is banking, not investing. But this is the but these are all the divergences that we've created, these distortions that we've been creating in the markets really since 1999 when we repealed Glass-Steagall. But yet we don't learn from those mistakes. And we keep repeating them over and over again. And here's the Fed now trapped once again. If they start hiking interest rates, they're going to slow the economy more than it's already slowing. So the economy is already starting to slow down. It's already showing up in manufacturing indexes and spending, et cetera. We're already seeing that. So the Fed's going to go, well, if I start hiking rates now, the economy's already showing some signs of weakness. I better keep interest rates at zero for longer. So we just kind of keep creating more distortions. If we have a weaker than expected employment report or we have weaker than expected inflation reports or whatever it is, all of a sudden we don't taper. Got to keep the game going. And that's really kind of where we are, right? Is that if the Fed does start raising rates and start tapering their balance sheet, that's going to cause the market to contract and that will lead to weaker economic growth and rates of inflation. Then the, then the Fed will be right back into the soup again of having just to lower interest rates back to zero and do more QE. If they don't do it, they create a bigger and bigger asset bubble. But then they're worried about wealth inequality. You know, I tweeted out yesterday, I said, the Fed being worried about wealth inequality is like your crack dealer standing on the street corner wearing a shirt that says, say, just say no to drugs. <laughs> it's just, you know, that's where we've gotten to in the markets is that the markets are addicted to this financial drip that's put into the to the markets every month, this $120 billion. And it's and it's difficult to rationalize this because the Fed has got themselves into this position. The question is, is how do you get yourself out of that position without totally creating a panic in the markets. Not sure they can. I think they know that too, which is why despite the fact that they've got a lot of their Fed minions running out telling the markets that they need to hike interest rates, you know, starting sooner or later, they need to taper sooner than later. Jerome Powell's back there going, hey, we may get around to it someday. I honestly don't think they know how to get out of it now. Be right back after the break. The Fed's got them in, themselves in a very bad position. If you raise interest rates, you crash the economy and the markets. If you don't, you just keep inflating the bubble till it blows up itself. 
And it, it's just a function that it, that there's really kind of no good outcome for the Fed at this point. And at some point, you just got to figure out which medicine tastes the least bad, right? <laughs> it's just you've got to figure that as like, I'm going to have to take it. Just which one do I want to take? And red pill, blue pill, right? So... We'll, we'll be interested to see how this all kind of works out ultimately. But this will be one for the history books, right? I mean, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be an interesting time when we look back in history and we go, there are things that were not quite right about that whole decade. You know, there's an interesting headline this right uh, out this morning. Fertilizer hits decade highs. Um, I'm not sure if they're talking about the media or actual fertilizer but could both go, of that could go both ways. Could go both ways. <laughs> um, yeah, fertilizer prices hit near decade high as farmers are struggling for a supply. And look, this is just we've got shortages everywhere right now. It doesn't really matter what you look at. There's shipping shortages, container shortages, um, just a, a a problem to get stuff to where you need it to go. And these supply chain disruptions are part of the problem with inflation. And this is one of the things potentially that, and we noted this in yesterday's daily market commentary on the website, we had a chart talking about the, the Fed and their preferred measure of inflation. And that preferred measure of inflation is about to surge to a very high degree. It lags PCE inflation by about a month, and then it's going to play catch up. And the problem for the Fed, again, and this is where we go back, the Fed's going to be in a very tough position between not wanting to raise rates in order to help support and help this economic growth continue and having to be forced into a position of maintaining price stability and full employment um, to tapering balance sheet assets and potentially raising rates sooner than expected. That's a problem. And this is just something that we're going to have to keep a watch on. But these supply chain disruptions, they seem to be easing in some areas, not in others. And the longer these things persist, the longer we're going to have this inflationary pressure within the economy. Now, eventually, as we said, look, two things are going to happen ultimately. And the supply chain disruptions will resolve themselves through a natural order. Either prices will rise to the point that demand drops significantly, easing up the demand, creating the supply disruptions, or the supply chains will come all back online and prices will drop because there'll be an excess of supply. It's always a supply-demand imbalance that creates these issues. And at some point, you're going to get that balance swing the other direction. It doesn't go from an extreme on one side back to back to normality and just stop. We're always going to go from one side of the coin to the other. So what these problems are being created in the economy now is going to accelerate the advance of the next recession when it occurs, and it'll happen fairly quickly. It's just how economics are going to work. So and this is the other problem for the Fed. They may very well start trying to taper, then wind up right back in a recession having to do more QE. So again... How do you manage that in terms of your portfolios is a different question. 
You know, but when you start taking a look at things, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with the markets right now. There's, uh, you know, markets are going up, very low volatility. As long as you're just looking at the headline surface, no reason not to have money invested in the markets right now. Um, and look, there was, there's opportunities. Um, we added to Apple uh, uh, about a month ago because it was lagging the market, typically doesn't do that. And it's had a nice run since we've done that. So, you know, we've gotten paid for that risk-taking, but that's all it is. It's risk-taking. It wasn't a fundamental decision. We haven't used fundamentals in managing our portfolio now for probably a year and a half. <laughs> it's just, you know, because you, you can't. Um, you know, when you start taking a look at companies that on a fundamental basis, you wouldn't buy most of these. You know, NVIDIA trades at 20 times price to sales. It's, it's, it's extremely overpriced for what it is. But it's going up, so we want to make money, so we own it. Microsoft, Amazon, all these companies, right? I mean, that's just the function of we've got to make returns for our clients. We know we're taking risk. And this is this is the, the idea that we've talked about a, a bit in relation to gambling in, in Vegas, which is we know we're sitting at a table and we know we're taking risk, right? We know that we're being dealt a hand, that we're betting on the odds of us being able to maintain a winning position. And that's going to fail at some point. I just don't know when. And nobody does. We've had seven straight months of advances. Now, could we go eight? Absolutely. Could we go nine? Absolutely. Could, could we go a year of positive gains? Sure. The longest stretch in history, there was one of them. We went 14 months of positive advances. So we're halfway there to the longest stretch in history. Is that a possibility? Sure. It could very well happen. As long as the Fed keeps doing what they're doing, why wouldn't it, right? I mean, that's kind of the, 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 whole, the whole kind of conundrum here is that investors are no longer investing because there's real value in the market. They're just investing because prices are going up. There was a, I've got an article coming up here soon talking about investing and you know if you look back at some of the articles we've written written recently about what's going on with millennials in particular they're taking out debt personal debt to invest right they're taking out home equity loans or tapping credit cards to put that money into the financial markets now the problem with that is nothing as long as the markets are going up there's nothing wrong with that you're making more money than you're paying in interest on the credit card great Helps you leverage up, build wealth. And they're taking these loans out, by the way, to fund their retirement, right? They want to get money into the market so that they can retire earlier. The problem is, is that when the market does crash, right, you lose the value of that asset, you're still stuck with the debt. That debt doesn't go away. You don't get to, 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 to renege on that debt and say, well, I'm not going to, to pay off the debt because the, money, the market went down. Nah, it doesn't work that way. You know, they're getting their investing advice from uh, people like Meet Kevin, who used to be a real estate agent and as and just sits around and day trade stocks now. You know, a lot of other advisors on YouTube now, they're not advisors. They're not they're not professionals in the markets. They're just individuals who have started a YouTube channel trading stocks and they're just, you know, they're buying all the meme stocks, right? Robinhood and AMC and GameStop and 
looking for these big market gain returns. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that until there is. But that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. But hey, I mean, look, meet Kevin. He's making $5 million a year doing what he's doing. So more power to you. If you can create a business doing that, that's capitalism. Awesome for you. People are stupid enough to pay you to do it. Terrific. <laughs> I keep trying to tell my kids this. I'm like, why are you, why are you not on, you know, TikTok creating videos? You know, you could be, the, you could be making millions of dollars a year rather than going to high school. <laughs> you know, this is, this is the problem. Um, this all ends eventually, and obviously it all ends badly at some point. Media doesn't want to tell you that because that doesn't sell product, so I'll tell you. But this is something you already know anyway. Um, and that's not being bearish. That's just being reality, and that's always the interesting thing here. Is like, you know, they were talking about Meet Kevin as an example in this Wall Street Journal article. And, you know, he says, look, if I'm bearish one day, I'll lose 20,000, 30,000 subscribers. I've got to be bullish all the time because that's what sells. People want to hear optimism, right? So if you want to hear optimism, right, you tune into these channels. They tell you just to buy it. It's only going to go up. There's nothing that's going to cause this market to go down. And right now they're right, right? Because of $120 billion a month in QE, we've been taught, just like Pavlov's dog, is that when the Fed rings the bell, markets go up. So we invest. Does that mean it's risk-free? No, that does not mean it's risk-free. And that's my whole point about this is that we have to do these things. And if you look at our portfolio right now, we own stocks. You're going to like, why do you own that? <laughs> it's super overvalued. Yes, it is. And it's still going up. And this is the problem with being pure fundamental investors and why we can't be. Because if you're a pure fundamental investor, you're underperforming the market significantly. So you can't keep clients. It's called career risk. So as in, so as portfolio managers and as advisors, we've got to take on these calculated risks. And, and there's the key word, right, is that we're taking on calculated risk. We're looking at momentum and technicals and fundamentals, and we're tying all these things together. And we're trying to maximize our return by minimizing the risk of loss. It's, it's, it's walking a razor's edge in this market, and we know we're going to get caught at some point. But that's why we're also always talking about hedging risk, holding a little extra level of cash, taking profits, doing these type of things, watching our money flow indicators. We're looking for those indicators that tell us that it's time to, to exit the theater quietly just before somebody yells fire. Because that theater is very crowded right now. Be right back after the break. You know, the Fed, when it comes to the financial markets, is like a crack dealer. And it's interesting because they have repeatedly talked about, they're concerned about wealth inequality, right? Well, there's a very clear correlation between, and we've showed this chart before, very high correlation between the Fed's balance sheet and the wealth of the top 10% of the economy. So it's kind of like when, they, when they're talking about, you know, wealth inequality, we're concerned about the wealth inequality in America. We need to work on solving that. Well, they're, as I said, they're like the crack dealer wearing a T-shirt that says just say no to drugs. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous. I thought it was interesting because there was an article out this morning 
former Fox Business Day anchor Trish Reagan spoke with former investment manager turned White House advisor turned Newsmax host Steve Cortez on her podcast called American Consequences. And what's interesting is, is that their conversation is about this middle class. And Reagan asked this question. She says, and she asked this question kind of during the intro of the podcast. She says, how long can the middle class handle surging stagflation? Soaring gasoline and supermarket prices and really no wage growth to speak of. And, and that's right, right? And, 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 you know, we talk about, or the Fed does anyway, talks about inflation, but we strip and we talk about inflation. We always say, well, we, we're looking at uh, CPI X food and gasoline. And that's fine. The reason they strip it out is because it's highly volatile. It goes up and down a whole lot. Gasoline is a, as a, as a function has a three month lag before it shows up in um, CPI. So yeah, that, that we strip it out because it's volatile and it kind of smooths out CPI, so we kind of get a more realistic trend, so to speak, of what's happening with CPI. But when it comes to the average American family, what do they buy every week? Food and gas. What don't they buy every week? See, and this is this is the thing that you know economists tend to misunderstand. Healthcare cost. Healthcare cost are going up, right? There's, there's no, especially since we passed the Affordable Care Act, we've had a huge surge in healthcare costs, even though it was supposed to lower healthcare costs. Remember that? But we pay for that, A, when we use it, which may be in some cases, like for me, I don't go to the doctor hardly ever, except for like a checkup. So maybe I use that, maybe I pay some money for healthcare once or twice a year, you know, deductibles or whatever that is. But the rest of my healthcare cost, and this is the important part, is flat. I pay, I pay my monthly healthcare cost is X dollars a month every month. And it doesn't change until we do the annual re-enrollment and make adjustments or whatever. And then it may change then. But during the course of the year, my healthcare costs are fairly fixed. My rent, my homeowner's equivalent rent is fixed. Now, if I go rent an apartment today, my rent is more than what Brant's rent was when he rented the apartment in January of last year. And he's got a three-year lease, right? So he's got a three-year contract on his apartment. His, his rent is $1,200 a month. I go to rent today, a very same apartment as Brent. And my rent is $1,800 a month. Brent's rent is fixed every month. So his rental inflation doesn't occur until he renegotiates his lease. And then when it comes up and he goes to renegotiate his lease, they say, Brent, your rent's going to be $2,000 a month. And Brent says, well, I'll see you. I'm moving. And he'll go find a different apartment. But during the course of that time, things like mortgage payments, car payments, rent payments, healthcare payments, they're fixed. For most people, they are fixed. So those, don't things, those things don't change. What does change? Food and gas. 
utility cost. Those things change every week for people. And if their wages aren't changing, that impacts them. That's a tax on them. And this is something we've talked about before, right? We can talk about raising taxes on the rich. Great, no problem. What they'll do is they'll raise the cost on the goods and services they produce that the poor consume, which is where their money comes from. And that just means that for the poor and middle class, their cost of living goes up. In other words, they are taxed out of their stand, live, living standard by higher cost. And that's the real problem. So back to Trish Reagan, she says, how long can the middle class handle surging inflation and stagflation? Importantly, she said that 11 to 14% food price increases at the supermarket are beginning to dent consumer sentiment. We're going to see that this morning, potentially with the conference board consumer confidence index at 9 a.m. Middle-class wages aren't adjusting for inflation, and many folks are living a different life than they were in pre-COVID times. It sounds like the, the you know, before the apocalypse. Um, and they're becoming furious at the American dream. So circle back to the Fed. She said that Powell and his gang of monetary wonks began to taper or at least raise rates in the near term. The inflationary impact will continue to crush middle America. She added that if inflation is not tamed and the Fed had to resort to former Fed Paul Volcker's more drastic rate hikes to curb inflation, it would severely impact asset prices such as stock, bonds, and real estate. As I said earlier, the Fed is trapped. Cortez said the Fed had been politicized and they only care about two things. And he's right. They're worried about removing the punch bowl of excess monetary policy and don't want to look like the bad guy. That is true. And the Fed is trying to protect the president. And that is either Biden or Trump. Because you remember under the Trump administration, they started trying to hike rates. And as soon as it impacted the markets, uh, President Trump started going after Jerome Powell and immediately Jerome Powell buckled and dropped rates. Remember, Jerome Powell was supposed to be a different Fed chairman than we'd had before. He was a guy that didn't come from the economic halls of an ivory towers of, of, you know, ivory universities. He came from corporate America and he was supposed to have a, a different view. He's supposed to be a different Fed president and more focused on actual policy rather than these other ideas. It turned out that he's just like everybody else. And he caved to the pressure of the president. He caved to the pressure of Trump. He caved to the pressure of President Biden. And in this case, Janet Yellen. Cortez told Reagan that the Fed should pare down it's unprecedented $120 billion a month in bond buying and began to lift Fed funds rate off the zero bound to tame inflation. He said inflation has created a new wealth for elites, but at the expense of the middle class, America barely seeing wage gains just for inflation. He's right. As I said, those at the top, right, the top 10%, those are your, those are your small business owners. Those are your middle-sized business owners. Those are your big business owners. They're your Tim Cooks. They're your, they're your, your Bill Gates and those guys. They're all at the top 10 right? They're the ones that are producing the products, the goods, the services that the middle class and, 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 and the lower class consume. They're not the low, the, the middle class and, and the, the, the lower class, they're not your business owners. They're the workers. So they're the ones that are consuming it. So if inflation goes up at the top end, the wealthy aren't sitting around going, Hey, you know what? I'm going to be a nice guy. I'm going to eat the inflation. 
So I don't really have to raise costs on the middle and, and lower classes because, you know, they really need some extra help. And they're not thinking that. They're going, I got to pass that on. And they do. And so whatever happens on inflation becomes a tax on the lower and middle classes. And that ultimately, and the reason this is important, is that's what impacts economic growth. 80% of your consumption comes from the lower middle classes because it's a lot of people, right? Your top 10% of the economy is not much. And they already consume at capacity. They're not consuming more stuff. They already have their jets and their boats and their planes and their trains and their automobiles. They've got all that. They're not going out to buy more of it. Their, their consumption didn't change during the pandemic. They didn't not go on vacations. They didn't not jump on their private jets and fly places. They did. The people that were curtailed by the draconian measures of the government over mask mandates and travel restrictions, all these other things for the virus, they're the ones that paid the price. And again, that's why the economy was impacted because that's about 80% of economic growth and they're the ones that are having to deal with it. Now, they got locked out of the economy last year. Now they're going to deal with the inflationary rebound caused by supply chain disruptions, caused by the shutdown. So, you know, the, the measures that we took, and you can argue with them whether they were right or wrong or indifferent and it doesn't matter because the measures that were taken were taken and they had their impact on the economy and now we're dealing with it. The problem for the Fed is, is they're exacerbating the problem. They're not helping it. They're making it worse. And this was the point between Reagan and Cortez that the Fed is responsible for this problem. And the problem now is they can't get themselves out of it because no matter what the, the, they do, they either exacerbate the problem or crush the economy for the middle class. All right, wrapped up the show for today. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Get by the website, get today's daily market commentary, as well as today's technically speaking blog post off the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. And be sure and ask a question or a comment. Just uh, use the box there at the top. It comes right to my desk, answer everyone every day. So good, if you got a question, let me answer it for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.